impartial. Romans 2, 6 through 11, part 2. And it says this. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be a tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. So if you're following along in your notes, point number one says this, God does not acknowledge intersectionality. This is something that today has become very prevalent in our culture, and we know that God is completely and totally impartial. His word tells us this. So as we are thinking about these things this morning, it is always important to let scripture guide us in our understanding of what is in front of us today. So intersectionality is a big word, and it basically means this. The complex, cumulative way in which the effects of multiple forms of discrimination, such as racism, sexism, and classism, combine, overlap, or intersect, especially in the experiences of marginalized individuals or groups. So this is a, a big, huge thing that is going on today. It's bringing a lot of conversation to the table, and it is even here in the church. So it is something that we need to look at, we need to discuss, and we need to know, first and foremost, if God is impartial, as the Bible says that he is, God does not acknowledge this idea of intersectionality. He does not acknowledge the idea of classes. He does not acknowledge the idea of races. There is just one race that God has created, and that is the human race, you and I. And he created us beautiful, he created us originally good, and he created us in his image and likeness. So we need to really consider with regard to being judged by what we do, not by what we look like, uh, not by how much money we make, not by what kind of car we are able to drive. It's really what we do. That's how we are going to be judged. Remember uh, what the verses say, which is so clear. He will render to each one according to his car? No. Job? No. Class? No. Race? No. He will judge, he will render under each one, and in, excuse me, he will render unto each one according to his works. To his works. You see, in God's eyes, this is how we want to view all of life, through God's eyes. Not through our own feeble eyes where we're offended by things and, and where we want to offend people at times by things. We want to view the world through God's eyes. In God's eyes, it doesn't matter what you have come from. And this is huge because uh, often we like to come up with um, different stories. Well, I'm this way because this happened to me or this happened to me. And yes, all of these things compile into our life experience. These things did help us to become the people that we are today because we chose how to deal with those things. In God's eyes, he's not going to judge you based on what you've come from. He knows what you've come from. Why? Because he's totally sovereign. And it was his decision to allow these things to shape and mold you and I. Race doesn't matter. Not to God. 
God doesn't have any a particular race he's selecting and saying, I like this better than this. It doesn't matter. In God's eyes, God is totally and completely impartial. So it doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter what you've come from. And race doesn't matter. With regard to being judged by what we do, in God's eyes, it doesn't matter your social circumstances. It doesn't matter where you work. It doesn't matter, you know, what your political ideologies are, all right? You don't get leeway for your status. Your finances do not matter. God's not looking at people and saying, oh, well, I, I like them better because, uh, you know, they, they have more money in the bank. Uh, that's not it at all. With regard to being judged, it's by what we do. It's by what we do in God's eyes your political positions do not matter. Now, the implications of your political positions uh, matter, but it's not like God is looking down on all of us and saying, oh, I can't believe they chose that party to side with. No, that's not it at all. God wants us to judge according to our Christian worldview, but it's not like he's looking down and he's selecting and saying, I like this political party better than this one. That's not it at all. And you don't get leeway for your status. That's how God operates. We don't get leeway for our status. It's not like we give a ton to people and all of a sudden God is going to turn his eyes. It's not like you are the kindest person in the entire world, but you have all of these secret hidden sins that you're hiding and you're you're doing in secret and and God is going to turn a deaf ear to that. No, that's not it at all. God is very, very clear. He is entirely and totally impartial. And this is very important because you and I, you and I should be grateful that God is totally and completely impartial because, let's be honest, we're a mess. We may look like we're holding it together great on the outside, but if if you were to examine our lives and our thought life, we're a mess. We need God to come in and clean things up and, and to continue to make us clean every day. This message of the gospel to repent and believe is not a one-time happening. Oh, I did that back in Sunday school when I was six years old. Yes, but it needs to have real life implications. In God's eyes, you don't get leeway for your status. It matters what we do. Everyone's familiar with this story. It's a very, very important story. And the way that we've been taught throughout the generations as we've been paying attention to, uh, to what's been happening, what we've been taught is what we honestly need to do is learn a moral lesson from this. That's to always make sure you help people that are tossed in a ditch because that's the good Christian thing to do. Not the message that Jesus was sending. Not the message that Jesus was trying to get across to everyone. Not the message at all. You ought to be a good little boy. You ought to be a good little girl and make sure that you um, take care of people when they're sick and when they're ill. We were not to understand this as moralism. This is meant to hit some spiritual matters that were infecting the people of Jesus' day and continue to infect and plague us today says this, and behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. 
But desiring to justify himself, as we all do, we want to justify ourselves. We want to make sure that people understand what I believe. He wanted to justify himself. He said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. But it didn't stop there. And the next day, he took out two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? To the man who fell among robbers. He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. So in this passage, what Christ is not telling us is be a good little boy, be a good little girl, be a good little Christian, make sure that you give to those who are in need. Um, God is actually calling people out on their racism. God is calling people out on their racism. Say, so where do you get that from? Well, the Samaritans uh, were the rejected race. They were those that were taken into exile and did not listen and intermarried and became uh, blended with the people in that culture. So um, those from, uh, from Judah, those from uh, the area around Jerusalem, the southern border, they went and they stayed pure. They stayed away from intermarrying with other people. So they saw the Samaritans as lower because this was a race that was blended with um, all of those that they were not supposed to mix with. So it was a serious racial condition. So when we see the priest walk by, this priest was considered to all people to be a pure Jew. The Levite, those that served the priesthood, were considered to be pure Jews. So for either one of those to walk by on the other side of the road and yet a Samaritan stop, this would have dropped jaws. This would not have been a people that was looking on and saying, oh, so I need to be like a Samaritan. It would be more like, so I need to be like a Samaritan? It would be something really, really wrong. In this passage... God, his people, were operating according to a partial bias. They were being partial in the way that they were judging. And who is my neighbor? And Jesus showed them exactly what one of their chief problems were. The problem is not external. The problem is in the heart. They're not looking at people made in the image of God. God is not impartial. Not I mean, excuse me, God is completely impartial. God is not partial, not at all. God never gives us an excuse, all right? God does not. He does not give us an excuse. He does not give us an excuse for operating against his law. He doesn't say you can treat these people this way and these people this way and these people this way. God never says that. It's nowhere in, in the scriptures where we are to, to divide in this way. Nowhere. So since God is completely and totally impartial as he is, God is not partial, 
as he is, you and I also are to operate impartially. We're not supposed to make judgments according to all of these different uh, intersections that people are making up now. These things should not exist. It's sinful, it's wicked, it's wrong, and the church ought to be calling it out and saying, no, 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 no. We cannot cause further division. This is the problem. See, there was division in Christ's day, and he addressed that, and we need equally today to address these things. Look at what Leviticus 19.15 says. It says, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. So yes, when you're in court, you don't judge people based on appearances, you are not to be partial. Leviticus 16.19 says this, You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. And you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Hope everyone's seeing this here. God gives us no permission in any way, shape, or form to be partial in the society in which we live. Proverbs 24.23 says, these also are sayings of the wise, partially, in judging is not good. Not good. God's people know that the law teaches that we are to show no partiality. You see, in Christ's day, it should not have been a problem. They should not have made these divisions between the Samaritans and everyone else. They should not have made all these strange divisions between people because God says we're to show no partiality. I ask everyone to answer there in your living room, which book was written first? The book of Matthew or the book of Leviticus? Everyone says the book of Levit Leviticus, of course. Which was written first? The book of Luke or the book of Proverbs? Everyone says Luke, of, uh, excuse me, Proverbs, of course. Why is that? Because we have the order here. We know exactly what the Bible says. God always wanted us to live this way. Look what it says here in Luke 20, 21. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. See, they said that. They knew that. They knew what the truth was. They knew in what they were saying and how they phrased this question that to be righteous, to speak and teach rightly, there had to be no partiality, yet they're showing it. They, in this one instance, condemn themselves. They know they're to show no partiality, but they do it anyway. They say right here, they know that he truly teaches the way of God because he shows no partiality. God is completely, totally impartial. Completely and totally impartial. Let's look for just a second at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Again, much newer passage telling us something else about God, further instilling within us this idea that God is impartial. We ought to be also. Look at Colossians 3.25 says, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. This is so vital for you and I. 
so vital. Understand this. When God judges based on works, he is judging based on works. It seems like I shouldn't really have to say that. Um, All means all. That's all all means. So when it says here, when God judges based on works, he is judging based on works. God doesn't have some hidden system where he's looking and saying, yes, but Billy did a better job today than Sally did, so we're going to reward him differently. No. When God judges based on works, that's exactly how he's judging, based on works. And, you know, today we find excuse after excuse after excuse for why we should not have to obey. Excuse after excuse. Well, you know, Troubled times have come. Finances are a little difficult, so I had to kind of just make things work. Uh, We have all these excuses for why we should not obey. Well, if I would have said this, then that person would have gotten in more trouble. So I just told just just a a little fib. I just shaded the truth. Just a a hair. I, I wanted to make sure I was doing the right thing. The problem is, if there's any evil sprinkled in it all, any deception sprinkled in it all, it makes the right thing the wrong thing. And today, we just seem to find it easy to make excuses why we should not have to obey what God's word says. Now there's a whole other school of thought where, well, that's what it means to you. Mm. I really have a difficult time believing that um, the Son of God hung on a cross for hours, spilling out his blood, suffering for the sins of the world so that we could pick and choose today what God's word means apart from what it says. So yes, it says that, but to me it means no. What an injustice to God. I've used this illustration before, but just picture this for a second. Someone gives you a letter and asks you to go to the grocery store to to pick up some groceries. Men, you know what I'm talking about. You get a list. It has specific brands of things you need to get. You come back with brand X stuff, and all of a sudden, you know, things are not well for you, not going well for you. Why is that? Because she knew what she wanted. She knew what she needed, and you didn't listen. You became the interpreter of the message. Problem being, you don't have the authority to do that, just as we do not have the authority to sit down and come up with how we feel God's word should apply. It's what it says that matters. It's exactly how it's written. is how we are to understand and interpret it. When God says, don't do this, he doesn't mean except in the case of, he means don't do it. He says, do not lust, uh, except in the case of, no, it just says do not lust. Do not steal. There's no exceptions in this. There's no exceptions for lying. There's no exceptions for breaking God's law. When he says that we should do things, It's so easy for you and I to come up with excuse after excuse why we should not have to obey. And the hard thing is we're hard-pressed to find a reason why we should. Because our lives just seem to flow in a natural direction where it's easier for us if we're the ones who are in control. God did not give us his law so we could toy with it. This would be the same thing as us handing a dangerous instrument to a small child. God did not give us his law so we could pick and choose. So point number two, very, very vitally important. I think we've already kind of covered this. Obedience to the truth matters. It absolutely matters. 
When God says to do something, we have to do it. We have to do it. Let's just look for just a second at this passage you're all familiar with from Matthew 25, the parable of the talents. Now, we know how this story goes. I'd like to just read it with everyone this morning. Uh, where you are, if you'll just follow along with me and, and read out loud wherever you are. Let everyone in the house hear this. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them. And he made five talents more. So also the one who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents, and here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents here. I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gather where I have scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Truth, you and I have been given life. Now, I don't just mean the breath that you're breathing. Many places in Scripture, uh, we're talking about the all incumbent life that you have, your resources, your health, all right? The truth is, you and I have been given so much. I know people with complete and full joy that are struggling to even walk today. They have more joy than some of the folks uh, that uh, have no problems at all, no physical disabilities at all. They have such joy because they see their life and how valuable it is. The truth is, you and I have been given life just the same as these men were given the talents. Another truth how you invest your life. What you do with it matters. What you do with it matters. How you invest your day, how you lay out, how you're going to spend your hours, it matters. Truth. It's from last week. We are not saved by works, and saved people are enabled by the Spirit to do good works. You and I are supposed to do good things. 
as saved people, as Christians, you and I are enabled by the Spirit to do good things. Remember, James 2.17 says this, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is, say it with me, dead. It's dead. Ephesians 2.10, remember, says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, the expression of our lives are to be lived out in doing good works. Truth. We must live out what we believe consistently and without excuse. Now, you and I love consistency. We love when we go to the coffee shop and our coffee tastes exactly the same uh, being that it was a good cup last time, the same this time. We love consistency. We love when we wake up in the morning and, and we can, uh, you know, expect the same things out of life. Even if you're the type of person that likes to expect all kinds of changes, um, change can be consistent if that's what you want in life. We love consist consistency. You and I must live out what we believe consistently and without excuse. Point number three, this, we've been saying this whole time now, vitally important to you and I, the gospel should affect every area of your life. Now, a few years ago, I was going to a church, and um, I was reading several books at the same time, and um, just that's what crazy people do. We read lots of books at the same time. And I was reading a book called The Gospel According to Jesus by John MacArthur. And um, a woman had seen that I was reading that there, and she said, as soon as you finish, I'd like to read that too. And I had about a chapter left, and I happened to be going to their place for lunch later on that day. So I said, sure, I'll make sure I get it to you. So I went home, you know, we were hanging out, and I read the rest of the book. And then when we went there for lunch, I, I brought the book to her. And I gave it to her, and she was so grateful, so excited to have this book. If you've never read it, I highly suggest and recommend that you do. It's a, it's a great book. Um, so that's Sunday. Monday comes along, Tuesday comes along, Wednesday comes along, and it's prayer study. And, um, and we had a meeting where we could pray together, and we had a Bible study, and the woman comes up to me with a really, really disgusted look on her face. She hands me back the book and says, this uh, book is not anything that I'm interested in. I don't agree with anything that it says. So I assumed that the pastor um, had looked at it, and he should have. And I made sure that I was not giving her some strange things. That's the pastor's job to protect the flock. And um, he says this is a dangerous book. The reason for that is because he sees a division between Jesus being Lord and Lordship, where Jesus has a say in how you and I live our lives. See, people do not like at all the idea that an impartial God has expectations. Don't like it. We don't like it. We want an excuse. We want an excuse. That's how we want to live. We want to live with this, with this excuse. Why God should not expect us to do the things that he says we should do. Now, some people say, well, that's legalism. No, legalism in the New Testament, as called out by Christ to the Pharisees all the time, is not them doing what God requires. It's 
them setting up their own standard apart from God's standard, thinking their standard is higher than God's standard, and calling those people to live out a life that they themselves are not living out, cannot live out. That is religious hypocrisy, what we're going to talk about next week in our sermon there. All right, so people do not like the idea of an impartial God that has expectations. Listen, I'm sorry to break the news to you. God has expectations of you. When God says you shouldn't murder, he actually means you shouldn't murder people. When Jesus says um, to say to your brother, Raka, meaning you fool, meaning you are worthless, he absolutely means that you should not devalue another human being in any way, that it is sinful. When God says we should not steal, he absolutely means in every single definition of the word, you and I should not steal. We can't do it. We can't do it. We want an excuse. Romans 2, 6 through 8 says this. Those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. I want you all to just think with me for just a moment about the cross. But all that that entails, think for me, or think with me, excuse me, just for a second, about all that is involved, all that is involved in what Christ did that day. Do you understand that when Christ hung on that cross, he hung for each person alike? He didn't draw these same divisions that you and I draw. He didn't do it. He did not do it. He died for all. One sacrifice for all. He loves you. He loves us. He wants us to live the best possible life that we can. And I'm not talking about a life of moralism. I'm not talking about your best life now like some of our favorite preachers out there seem to be telling us we ought to be able to live. We're talking about this life that God has given to us. He wants it to be the fullest. So when God says don't do this, it's not that he's saying don't do this because he wants to restrict you from doing the things you like. It's because that thing isn't as good for you as the thing he has. Because when we go and distort and destroy relationships because we have done the wrong thing, it's because we have done the wrong thing, and that is not what God wants for any one of us. When we go and we make a mess of our finances, as some of us have, that's not what God wants for us. He doesn't want us to be slave to the lender. The best life that we can possibly live is being free from all that stuff. So when God tells us to do things, he, he honestly means that this is the best life that you and I can have. So if you all join me for a word of prayer.